You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 23 this morning. The other day, Andrea and I went to see the Indiana Jones movie. Any of you guys seen it? Yeah. Totally disappointed. I, I, I don't know about you guys. I was totally disappointed with that movie. <laughs> Hey, I, what can I say? That's right. I mean, there. I had this cool intro to, and now you guys have ruined it. So, but I mean, the the acting is terrible. Uh, you know that young guy that's been in a few new movies. That's in that movie. He's like one of my favorite actors right now. He it ruined it for him. He was horrible in it. Harrison Ford's horrible. The lady with the sword, I don't even know her name. She's horrible. The Russian lady. It's, the writing is bad. The acting is bad. You don't know what kind of movie you're watching. Is it aliens? Is it adventure? Is it romance? You have no idea. what The genres are so convoluted. You have no idea what even kind of movie it is. The special effects look like something that a guy made at home and threw, threw together, it's bad. It's really, really bad. And you know what? There are, some things, there are some things that are just left untouched. You know what I mean? Because Andrew and I went to that movie, and, and for us, it was like a childhood um, just phenomenon, you know, Indiana Jones. We, when, when that trilogy came out, we were pretty young. And so we were excited, wow, you know, the fourth installment of such a great series of movies. And, and we got there kind of late, just late enough for uh, the previews to be over. And we walked in, and there was like this weird kind of cheese ball uh, war scene, like something out of MASH is kind of what it looked like. And like a Jeep driving down the road, and Andrew goes, oh, good, it hasn't started yet because it doesn't look anything like Indiana Jones. We sit down, and it has started. It is Indiana Jones, and it just went downhill from there. (laughs) And so my point is is that some things are just better left untouched. And that's certainly true, certainly true of the gospel, is that there are some things, the gospel being at the top of that list, that are better left untouched, unchanged. You remember last week, or last time we were in Colossians, I should say, that we looked at verse 10 of chapter 2, and it says, You are complete in Him. You are complete in Him. Again, Paul doesn't really leave a lot of ambiguity there. You're complete in Him. And when you read that, you are complete in Him, it means it's finished. You don't need anything that you can't add to it, that you better not take away from it, and that it's better left untouched. You're complete in Him. And the question that we've kind of been asking in that is, is Jesus enough? If you're complete in Him, and it's better left untouched, is Jesus enough? See, that's, that's a question George Lucas and Steven Spielberg should have asked themselves. Is the three movies we've made, are they enough? 
Yeah, they were. Because Harrison Ford's washed up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's... <laughs> he... <laughs> I didn't know we had such diehard Harrison Ford fans here. My apologies. I didn't mean to offend anybody. I mean, he had a good ride. It's time to hang up the lightsaber and, you know, call it good. I know, I'm sorry. Let's read the text. Colossians 2, 11 through 23. In him... You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So... Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels intruding into those things which he has not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head or to Jesus from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. There's a lot there. We're going to try to unpack it a little bit here this morning. And really, I want to point out two things in our text. First of all, what Jesus did for us, and then what Jesus asks of us. A couple simple points and a few things under those to help us understand what Paul's trying to, to tell us here. What Jesus did for us, verses 11 through 15. Basically, He tells us three things that Jesus did for us. He gave us complete salvation. He gave us complete forgiveness. And he gave us complete victory. He says, in him you were also circumcised. And he's speaking of this figuratively. 
He's taking what was familiar to them and he's using it as an illustration. And something you need to understand is that this heresy that Paul is writing to the Colossian church about, called Gnosticism, it was kind of a a mixture of Jewish legalism and Greek philosophy. And so they kind of had both things going on, this this intellectualism that Paul talks about uh, in the above verses, where, where he says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. They were all wrapped up in being smart, being really smart, thinking that, that they could figure God out. They had a deeper knowledge. And Paul says, look, I want you to be aware. I want you to, to understand that you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. They were, they were mixing that Jewish tradition in with Christianity, just like the Judaizers were doing in the churches in Galatia that Paul writes to them about. And the Gnostics were doing the same thing, except they were mixing it in with intellectualism. And Paul says, look, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And so obviously he's talking about something spiritual, not something physical. He's not talking literally about the cutting away of the flesh physically. He's talking about the cutting away of the flesh spiritually, which we all need, whether male or female. And even as we prayed this morning, that we're so aware of our sinfulness, right? And we need that flesh to be cut away. And Paul is telling them, it's been done in Christ. That there isn't some kind of deeper knowledge that you need. That there isn't some kind of ritual or or some kind of tradition that you can adhere to that's going to help you to be closer to Jesus. Going through this practice of circumcision did not make them more spiritual. That's what they were being told. But it didn't. And so he wants them to understand that they have complete salvation in Jesus. That he's put off the body of sins by the circumcision of Christ. You see, Jesus at the cross, in a sense, circumcised our spiritual man by cutting away the flesh. And completely eradicating the flesh. Where we don't have to live according to the flesh anymore. Now, we still have the old man to contend with, but he doesn't rule our life unless we allow him to. And so if you're feeding the old man, if you're sowing to the flesh, then you'll reap of the flesh. Just like the stray cat in your neighborhood, if you feed it, it keeps coming back. Well, if you feed your flesh, it'll be stronger and it'll keep coming back. If you want to get rid of it, just don't feed it. And Paul wants them to understand this complete salvation. That we were buried with him in baptism. Speaking of the the identification in Jesus' death in that we were freed from our sin. That we were circumcised in our spiritual man. That we were buried with him. And so as you see Jesus being buried... That we were buried with him. Just like in baptism, it's a, it's a symbol. As you go down into the waters of baptism, 
you're being buried with Jesus. Your sins are being buried with Christ. In which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so we identify with Jesus' crucifixion. We identify with his burial. And we identify with his resurrection. And those are all symbolized in baptism. Now what some people have done is they've made baptism just like circumcision. They've said, well, you need to be baptized to be saved. And until you're baptized, you're really not all that Jesus would want you to be. That, that you haven't experienced the, the fullness, the, the depth of salvation. Now, baptism is an ordinance. It's a command, in fact, from, from the Lord. But if someone comes to Christ on their deathbed and does not have the opportunity to be baptized, they're no less saved than someone that is baptized. And so we can make baptism just like circumcision. Baptism, like circumcision, is an outward sign of an inward change. You see, back in the Old Testament, when Abraham was commanded to circumcise his household. That didn't make Abraham a child of God. In fact, years previous to that, God told Abraham that he was righteous because he believed in him. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham was circumcised and he even circumcised his adult male servants. And that's what made him righteous in God's sight. No, Abraham believed God. The circumcision was simply a symbol, a sign of what God had already done in the heart. And the same with baptism. Baptism is a sign. As you go down in the waters of baptism, you're identifying with Jesus' death and His burial. And as you come out of the waters of baptism, you are identifying with His resurrection. And here's the thing. We've all heard Easter messages about the resurrection. As Paul says here, that we were raised with Him through faith in the working and the power of God who raised Him from the dead. We were raised with Christ. Now, oftentimes when we talk about the resurrection, we think of something that is going to happen in the future. That, yeah, Jesus kind of was the forerunner, the trailblazer, that, that when I get to heaven, I'm going to experience the resurrection. You guys, the resurrection and the power therein is available to us today. The Bible tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in our heart. Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. That's the amazing thing about the Easter message. Is that God wants us to begin to experience eternal life today. He wants us to, to enter in and to appropriate the power of the resurrection today. And so... 
the first thing that we see Jesus did for us is he gave us complete salvation. And that we identify with that. We also see that he gave us complete forgiveness. Verses 13 and 14. And you being dead. You being dead. He doesn't say in you kind of having a difficult time relating to God. And you being really, really sick. And you being somewhere in this kind of limbo place where you weren't sure where to find God. He says, no, you were dead. Completely incapable of relating to God at all was the state that we were in. We were dead. And you being dead in your trespasses. Trespasses are, are those willful sins. The word sin in the Bible literally means to miss the mark. Now you can do that unintentionally. You can sin unintentionally. In fact, we're born with a sin nature. We're sinners not only by practice, but by nature. But a trespass is when you fully understand what you're doing and that it's wrong and that it's opposed to God and you do it anyway. I mean, you think about it like trespassing. There's a sign that says private property, no trespassing. You look around. It's a big buck over there, right? The fence, you know, over the top. That's trespassing. You know that it's wrong. You know what you're doing, and you do it anyway. Jesus died for those things as well. Jesus died for every sin, whether willful or unintentional. We were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. The flesh had not been cut away. It was fully functioning. We were dead to God, but boy, our flesh was alive and well. And it was ruling our life. We, this was the state that we were in. We can't glamorize it. We, we can't try to make it seem like something other than what it was or maybe what it is for you right now. If you don't know Jesus, you're dead in your trespasses. And yet he has made alive together with him. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out, literally like a, a white erase board. He's wiped it out. He wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Literally, this is like a certificate of debt, an IOU. Like that credit card statement you get in the mail each month that says you owe this amount of money, a certificate of debt. Jesus took that and he nailed it to the cross. He wiped out the requirements that were against you and I. 
And there were requirements. Jesus told his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're hopeless. And they were like, what? These are the most righteous guys on the planet. How are we supposed to have a righteousness that exceeds theirs? And what Jesus meant was, you need to be perfect in order to try to come to God on your own. Otherwise, you have to come through Jesus. Because Jesus took the requirements, the debt that was against us, the perfect expectation that was held over our head. Jesus took that, he wiped it away, he nailed it to the cross, and we've been completely forgiven. And that's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And so Paul wants us to know that we have complete salvation, that we have complete forgiveness, that there's no sin that Jesus didn't take care of at the cross. That every sin that you and I have ever committed was nailed there with Him. He has made us alive, forgiven all our trespasses, wiped out the handwriting. Just picture that whiteboard being erased. It it did say, sinner condemned to hell. Dead. Completely incapable of relating to God at all. If you've ever been in a hopeless situation where you had to rely upon somebody else to help you, maybe you were drowning, maybe you, maybe you were in a, a car accident and, and somebody else had to pull you out of the, the car, the, the metal was around you. If you've ever been in one of those situations where your strength, your power, your capabilities were completely non-existent. That's the situation we were in spiritually. And yet Jesus came and he rescued us. And he took away the handwriting of requirements that was against us. And he forgave us for all of our sins. We have complete forgiveness. And then the last thing that we see Jesus did for us is found in verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And so we see that we have complete victory. He disarmed principalities. You can just imagine the devil and his condemning minions who were pointing the fingers at us, who had all sorts of weaponry pointed at us to condemn us, to send us straight to hell. And Jesus disarmed all of that through the cross. He disarmed principalities and powers and he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. What Paul has in mind here is the the Roman victory procession. Everybody would come out for this parade 
when they would conquer another kingdom. And the, the victorious general would be arrayed in all of the spoils. And he would have all of the prisoners of war behind him. And the king of that nation that they conquered would be all dressed in black. Black. He would be made to look like one that had been defeated. And the people would be cheering and there would be all the spoils of war and all the money and all the prisoners and it was a big deal. They would make a public spectacle of this nation that they conquered. That's what Paul had in mind. Maybe for us, maybe you've got in mind just like a good old-fashioned butt whooping. Have you ever seen one of those? Remember, maybe in high school, if you think back, remember the kid that always got picked on and finally he had enough and he just went ballistic on the guy? Did you ever see something like that? I saw it more than once. Where a guy would just get picked on and picked on and put down and put down and finally he couldn't take it anymore. And he just goes nuts. And I saw that in junior high actually where this little kid just pounced on this kid that was way bigger than him and it literally took four or five teachers to pull this kid off. And he just went nuts. Just one after the other, made a public spectacle of that bully. Nobody messed with that kid anymore. <laughs> you know? A good old-fashioned butt-whipping. We've seen him, and that's what Jesus did at the cross. He made a public spectacle, a public spectacle of them. He made it very, very public. You see, the devil thought he was winning by sending Jesus to the cross. He thought he had won. And yet, through that, through the most humble and unlikely of events, Jesus won the victory. You see, we often want Jesus to be like Rambo. We want him to win. We want him to be the little kid that just goes nuts. Can't take it anymore. And he gets revenge. I remember the first time I saw the Jesus movie. And in watching it, I wasn't a Christian. And I was thinking, man, I hope this guy gets revenge. Because I, I'm just, you know, filtering everything through like hero movies, right? And I mean, when is Sylvester Stallone going to strap on the, the bullets and the grenades? When's he going to be ripping the leeches off of him, you know, as he's crawling through the swamps? I mean, any time now. I mean, come on. They're whipping you. Are you going to let him do that? They're putting you on a cross. This isn't how I thought it was going to turn out. But through that, through that humiliation, through the most unlikely of events, Jesus made a public spectacle of them. You see, Christianity, you guys, is, is backwards. 
from the world. It started at the cross where Jesus won a victory over our enemies with humility, with servanthood, with being led as a lamb before its shears and opening not his mouth by not giving a defense for himself, by allowing people to beat him and to torture him for the sake of others. See, none of this resonates with us at all. But in it, we found victory. And so we see that we have complete salvation, we have complete forgiveness, and we have complete victory all through the cross. We can never get very far from the cross without trying to add something to the cross. We are complete in Him. Jesus is enough. That's what Paul wants them to understand. That Why are you guys getting wrapped up in this stuff, this intellectualism? This circumcision for salvation. Why why are you getting wrapped up? And then he, he elaborates on that in verses 16 through 23. And he begins to tell them what Jesus asks of us. He's told us what Jesus did. And now that was kind of parenthetical as he was talking about Things to be aware of in verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you. Well, now he's going to go back to that warning. He kind of warned them. Then he told them about what Jesus has done. And now, in light of that, he begins to warn us again. And he gives us three things to be aware of. Three things that Jesus asks of us. The first one is found in verses 16 and 17. Do not let anyone judge you. Beware of legalism. Look what he says. So, in light of this, in light of the complete salvation, the complete forgiveness, the complete victory. See, it's not just randomly, I'm telling you, don't let people do this. It's attached to the revelation of the gospel. So, In light of this, let no one judge you or condemn you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Basically, legalism. Let no one judge you by what you eat. Remember the Jewish dietary laws? Well, there was a reason that God gave those dietary laws and and a lot of it was for health purposes especially as they were out there in the desert wandering around. And and in Leviticus, God gave them certain things that they shouldn't eat because it would make them sick. And we now know with medical science that, yeah, if you eat pork and it's not cooked properly, you're going to get sick. If you eat certain kinds of animals and bugs and plants, they'll make you sick. And they're, they're unclean, they're dirty, and they're not good for us. But you can cook anything and it's fine. 
And that's why Jesus, when he came, said, look, it's not what you put into a man's heart. It's not what you take in physically that makes a man clean or unclean. It's what comes out. It's what's in there already. Jesus said, really doesn't have anything to do with food. And then that was even further substantiated in Acts. As Peter got the vision. And he didn't like the vision of of all the food. Every animal on the earth, clean and unclean. And the Lord spoke to him and said, rise Peter, kill and eat. And his Jewish tradition didn't like that at all. He, he, He didn't like the fact that now... Everything was, was okay to eat because he had been raised with the understanding that, that by eating this, I'm close to God. And by not eating this, I'm close to God. And vice versa. But Jesus wanted him to know that his closeness to the Lord and his relationship to him had nothing to do with food. And yet these Gnostics, these legalistic people were coming in and they were saying, no, it does have to do with food. It does have to do with what you eat. It does have to do with what you celebrate. That you better be celebrating these certain festivals. It does have to do with what day you worship on. That you better be adhering to the Sabbath. Friday night to Saturday night, you better not do anything. And you better worship the Lord on Saturday, and we have groups today that teach us the same thing. That if you're not worshiping on Saturday, that you're not close to God. And Paul clearly tells us that isn't true. Paul says, beware of legalism. Beware of people that would want to come in and tell you that there's something you can do externally to make you closer to the Lord. Now, Legalism comes in all different shapes and sizes. A lot of times it, it has nothing to do with food or, or with days we worship. Today it has to do with, with other things. How you dress, what kind of movies you watch, do your kids go to public school, do you have a TV, where you go to church. These are the kinds of things that people will use to insert legalism into our life. And we have to beware that, that things like legalism do not creep into our life. That we don't allow anything that would be external to rob us of what Jesus has done for us internally. That we don't begin to think that there's something that I can do for God to make Him love me more. That if I get rid of this or if I begin to do that, that's what they were saying. A second thing that Paul warns them about is do not let anyone disqualify you. He says beware of mysticism, verses 18 and 19. Let no one cheat you of your reward. 
taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Paul's talking about mysticism here now. There, there's a mysticism that's okay that's just basically those that desire to be close to the Lord. But then there's a mysticism which is basically placing experience above the revealed word of God. That my experience trumps the Bible. That, hey, I had a dream. I had a vision. I had a prophecy. An angel spoke to me. Yeah, but what the angel said to you or what was said in that prophecy or what you saw in that dream doesn't line up with the word of God. Yeah, but it happened to me. I mean, I was sitting there in my bed and this angel named Phil showed up and he told me this. Yeah, but that's opposed to the word of God. God wouldn't contradict himself. Hey, I experienced it. Look, Our experiences, you guys, always have to be filtered through the Word of God. There have been plenty of people who have been visited by angels and have received doctrines of demons. And so we can't put faith in anything other than the Word of God. We have to filter our experience through God's Word. Now, hey, if God speaks to you in a dream and it's confirmed and ratified and substantiated in His Word... Praise the Lord. If God gives you a vision or a prophecy, or even if an angel comes and speaks to you, which we see happen throughout the Bible, if that happens to you, praise the Lord. That's awesome. But it needs to line up with the Scripture. Otherwise, we have no foundation by which to test things by. And it becomes a free-for-all. And you know what? We see these free-for-alls happening. There's one happening down in Florida right now. It's it's on the TV, and, and, and they want us to believe that this is something from God. An angel named Emma has appeared to this man and given him all kinds of prophecies. People are supposedly being healed, and maybe some are. I'm sure by faith, some are being healed. What's coming out of the mouths of these teachers and these prophets is not scriptural. And so when we test what's happening by the word of God and we see it contradict the word, then we know it isn't of the Lord. And so Paul says, beware of mysticism, false humility, See, they said, look, you you can't come to Jesus just directly. You've got to have an angel. You've got to have an angel that will help you to get to Jesus. And so it was a false humility that was basically saying, we're not good enough to get to God, so we've got to have an angel. But in their false humility, they were bringing in doctrines that were opposed to God. They were worshiping angels. And they were placing their experience above God's word. You guys, we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware that 
we don't allow something like that, and it could be anything, to creep into our life that would pull us and drive us away from Jesus. Because the question that we asked ourselves is, is Jesus enough? We're complete in Him. So we don't need angels. We don't need more revelation. We don't need any of these experiences to make us closer to Jesus. Now if it happens, praise the Lord if it drives you to Christ. But if anything gets in your way of Jesus, then it's wrong. And Paul says, beware of it. Then he says, finally, do not let anyone enslave you. Verses 20 through 23. Beware of asceticism. And basically what that is, is the worship of self-denial. It's the worship of self, really. It's saying that my denial of bodily appetites is what is going to make me close to God. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Why would you subject yourselves to regulations that Jesus nailed to the cross? Why would you allow someone to say, hey, abstain from all pleasure. Don't have any fun. And when you do that, then you're really glorifying God. And that's why we see people in church history, one man in particular, the last 36 years of his life, he spent on top of a column. Sat there for the last 36 years of his life. Because he believed that by denying his flesh, he was as close to God as he could possibly be. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. All these do nots. Don't do this. Don't have a TV. Don't send your kids to public school. Don't dress like that. Don't wear makeup, ladies. Don't buy nice clothes. You better not drive that kind of car. Now look, if the Lord speaks that to your heart, and that is a personal conviction that you need to homeschool your kids, or that you need to get rid of your TV, or that you shouldn't wear makeup, or that you shouldn't have a beer, then you need to heed the voice of God. But don't talk about it. Don't brag about it. Don't tell everybody how spiritual you are. Because you're robbing yourself of your rewards. You're robbing yourself of what the Lord wants to do in your life, and you're putting your convictions on other people, and guess what that's called? Legalism. Allow God to speak to people. You may feel with every fiber of your being that a Christian parent should not send their kids to public school. And if that's what you believe, then you stick to that. But don't make that the standard by which everybody else lives by. Because now you're placing things between Jesus and people. And you're saying, well, the cross is sufficient if you send your kids to public school. The cross is sufficient if you don't drink a beer. 
See, there's no biblical mandate for these things. Now, there's biblical mandates for lots of things that we aren't to do. And so you can confidently say to somebody, hey, do not have sex with somebody that's not your spouse. You can confidently say that to somebody and not be a legalist. But see, what they were doing is they took it the next step. Don't have sex, period. That's what they would say. Even if you're married, abstain from it. Because by abstaining from it, now you're really close to God. And there's these kinds of belief systems out there even today. It wasn't just the Gnostics. It wasn't just these people who were called ascetics. It happens today, however you want to label it. Which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They, They seem wise. Don't do this. Don't do that. It seems right. You're thinking, yep, that's right. I I need to simplify. And we we need to start just eating rice and beans and then giving the rest of our money away to feed children in Africa. Hey, you know what? If God shows you to do that, praise the Lord. But I knew a guy that did that. He made his family suffer. Little tiny house, like seven kids. They ate rice and beans all the time. They had one car for the whole family. Wouldn't buy their kids clothes. They were Christians. You know what happened? He and his wife got divorced. None of his kids are walking with the Lord. Because it was such oppression. It was such legalism. Now listen, if God is calling you to a life of simplicity, then you can do that with the joy of the Lord. And it's a beautiful thing. But we, we needn't make that the standard for everybody else. It seems wise. Oh, it seems like, yes, this is going to make me close to God. But it's self-imposed religion. Religion is my attempt to get to God. It's false humility. Because really it glorifies myself. Glorifies the flesh. And it has no value against the true indulgence of the flesh. Isn't that so true? Get rid of the TV. Yes, I am holy. But the lust wheels keep on turning, don't they? You can't get rid of it. See, it's the heart. It's the heart that Jesus wants to deal with. And you can go live in a monastery. You can go live out in the woods. And you still have your flesh to contend with. That's Paul's point. Let Jesus deal with your heart. What Jesus did for us and what Jesus asks of us continues to beg the question, is Jesus enough? You have everything you need for a life of godliness in Jesus. Everything. You're complete in Him. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You have complete salvation, complete forgiveness, complete victory. Is that enough? Are we looking for something else? 
Let's not allow anything, you guys, to draw us away from Jesus. That's Paul's point in this entire letter. Don't let anything draw you away from the simplicity of Jesus. Is Jesus enough for you? You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.